You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 11 of Prehistories uh, with me, Kim Bidolph. Apologies for missing an episode uh, back there. I'm getting back on track now with episode 11 and it's going to be fantastic. In this episode, we're um, looking at uh, a children's book. Now, some of you may know that in my other work, I, I run Schools Prehistory, which is um, aimed at, I aim to try and get um, knowledge of prehistory, better known by teachers, to help them with the new curriculum, which has just come in in England um, over the last couple of years. Uh, and obviously in other parts of the UK, teachers have been teaching about this period for many years, but it's very new in, in England. Um, and I was looking for all sorts of books that they could use in class, and I came across this one. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's called The White Stone Stories by John Barrett, and it's illustrated by Christine Clark. Um, I'm very privileged to actually have the author on the podcast tonight. So hello, John. Hello, Kim. Thank you for having me on. No, thank you very much for for joining me on the podcast. It's very lovely to have you. And we also have um, uh, community archaeologist uh, Brian Wilkinson, um, who has known this book for many years um, and also is uh, doing the same job as me, really, um, but working it north of the border. So hi, Brian. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for very much. And we've been talking about this for a quite a while now haven't we it has been a while one thing and another kept cropping up and uh, yeah. but we're here now we are and i'm very excited so um john your uh your background is not strictly archaeology is it although it's quite related you're you trained as a historian originally is that right that's right i, I came to archaeology really rather late in life um um, it's never too late to join the good guys. Uh, well, it's, it's a move into archaeology from archives. Uh, I was an archivist for many years um, and then found I was just drifting into the dark side. <laughs> That's not how we see it. We see it very differently, don't we, Bri? We do, we do, though um, archives are very important, of course, to doing research, especially, especially the historic period. Um, Absolutely. And that's kind of where I know John from, from a project we worked on looking at historic archaeology. Um, right. What was that project? Tell us a bit more about uh, that then. That project was, was Scotland's rural past, um, which was um, ran from 2006 to 2011, and it um, was funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund, um, and it involved looking um, at uh, lots of abandoned settlements across Scotland, so abandoned farmsteads, abandoned mm. townships, abandoned crofts as well, um, and trying to record them and find out about them and add them to the um, to the to the national record of these monuments because we don't really know an awful lot about them, even though they're perhaps Scotland's most widespread type of um, type of monument. Mm. Yeah, so the historic archaeology is obviously, um, it has to encompass the actual history as well, uh, obviously. Um, but, but this is where I become a little bit, uh, I get a bit panicked because there's just so much information when you get to the historic period. And I like I like to retreat to prehistory <laughs> where, where I, I, you know, there isn't anything written. It's really good because you can, you can just look at the physical evidence and uh, interpret it as you like. Obviously... Um, uh, based on the evidence but um yeah i get it there's just so much to know when you when you get into the historic period but you've been um obviously uh seduced a little bit by prehistory as well john yes um well i came i came to it really as a, a volunteer digger several years back on an iron age site oh. and found that i could uh, i could dig i found that it was uh <laughs> I just fell straight into it yeah. and I dug several Iron Age sites around up here and then um, we were into Bronze Age sites and cave sites and oh, wow. I realised that the world was getting weirder and weirder as I moved away from the historic period um, and this is why we got into fiction in the end because there are so many gaps in the prehistoric record and Absolutely. somehow 
the fiction fills in those gaps. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, so tell us how you came to write. This wasn't your first book um, in, set in prehistory, was it? That, that, that's, that's correct. Um, it came about I was doing day schools in Aberdeenshire as part of the Curriculum for Excellence, which I think mm. is the same as the English uh, revised uh, curriculum that they're doing now, and that it's, involved... oh no, it's it's much freer, much. It's, I, th- I think it's much probably. I would say better, um, <laughs> but it, it actually allows teachers to teach what they uh, decide rather than being very prescriptive. The whole point of the new curriculum for England was it that it wasn't prescriptive, but it is anyway. It is. Let's not don't don't start me off on that because that's not what <laughs> that, we're here. Let's not do education policy. It's always no. better north, north, north of the border. It's always better. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they tell me anyway. Anyway, so we were doing these um, these day schools and we were doing Victorians and the Second World War and things like that. Mm. And I thought, oh, why not do prehistory? Mm. And the prehistory just took off. The kids loved it. Yes. They loved the strangeness and the differentness. And as a result of that, the Aberdeenshire Council, whom I was working with at the time, they said, right, we'll commission a book to be used in our schools. And I thought, ooh, oh, wow. okay. Um, uh, I'd never written fiction as such before, um, but I got the commission sort of around October time, and by February the book was nearly done. Um, I was rather under the hammer from the council because they phoned me up in advance and said, right, uh, we've got the money now. Can we pay you in advance? (laughs) (laughs) So a small, small pause for thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, after I'd bitten their hand off, um, I was really committed (laughs) to writing the book. (laughs) And the result was a, a novel called The Salt Trader's Boy, which was set in the early Neolithic. Um, it's I've got to get of, hold of that. That would be wonderful. Yeah, it's unfortunately they produced it for their own schools and then never sold it outside. Mm. There are a few copies around. We will get you a copy in due course. Um, oh, that'd be great. There's a few copies still around. Uh, it's it's a kind of um, in that sort of Rosemary Sutcliffe sort of uh, genre. Yeah. Um, children children doing daring do. Uh, yes. But also, I think it's probably fairly authentic for the period, and it's dealing with the very early Neolithic when the farmers are set, setting up in the woodland and trying to deal with um, the hunter-gatherers who are still in the forest. So we have this tension, we have racial tension, we have social tension, we have cultural tension. That sounds good. So, um, and this was a second commission, um, the the Whitestone stories. Was That's it? right, and it mm. came from the same source, the Aberdeenshire Council. They said, "Oh, that was good. We want something for children slightly younger because right. um, they realised the other was for sort of the reading generation." Yeah. Um, so, I sort of um, started off with a single line, and the single line was, "I don't care," said the big brown bear, <laughs> and I thought. What's this book all about? <laughs> um, and in the end, it turned out to be seven stories, um, kind of kind of linked a bit, um, which deal with different periods in prehistory, starting with uh, hunter-gatherers, yeah. going through the Neolithic, then reaching the end of the Bronze Age when things start to fall apart, um, and dealing <laughs> with themes of change and, uh, uh, yes, and prehist- prehistoric societies in yeah. Scotland. Fantastic. Yeah, I I felt that um that I knew some of the I think the sites um I, I when I read it frankly although I read the blurb on the back and saw that you were from Scotland um I assumed that quite a lot of the sites were from down south because I I look at, at at kind of southern English archaeology mostly that's that's um what I know more about so I had assumed that they were referring to places like Avebury Silver Hill and West Kennet Longbarrow for some reason or in, in that kind of as I did feel that they they made a kind of coherent um, group of monuments in the same place um, so it but that's that's not quite what it was was it um not really no. um certainly it's not down south um no. we have the same up here and exactly this is the thing is sorry some of the most spectacular ones are north of the border yeah we, i mean we 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 have orkney <laughs> we have orkney we have kilmartin we exactly. have many places 
but that it, part of it, Bri, is that um, the this complex of uh, and evolution of monuments is very similar wherever you go in the UK. Um, there are there are links across the UK from uh, you know that people are clearly talking to each other and have a shared culture from these very early times. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Um, I was I was just up in Orkney. That was, that was our family holiday this year. So we went oh, up and we cool. um, we had a look at um, the Ness of Brodgar site. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic tour around about it. And the guide who was who was leading the tour, you know, told us all about um, how it relates to all the various monuments and the latest thinking about it. That um, there were connections made, you know, between. Um, these you know fairly remote to us islands off the north of Scotland mm. and Wessex um, and, and and other parts as well. So you know they were interconnected. Um, I, I imagine um, people would have had you know friends and contacts and and, and maybe relatives all over the place. It, I don't think we need to think about these people so long ago as as being isolated. Mm. No, absolutely. Yeah, that- that used to be the thought that um, the discrete dis- communities in the sto- in the Stone Age, especially, were somehow separate, and they were living on the margins, and uh, I don't know, living in in mud huts and putting up dreadful stone monuments that didn't have any writing on. But there was a commonality of culture throughout Britain, and that suggests contact at all times. Um, and indeed, some of the most spectacular monuments are now in the places that we think of as remote. As remote, yeah. They're, they're all connected, though, by sea. Yes, absolutely. If you absolutely. look at the sea connections, say, between Scotland and the Low Countries, where you have chambered tombs, or, or across the Channel, say, between southern England and Brittany, where you have the same sort mm. of megalithic monuments, people were intimately connected and they knew what was going on elsewhere and i think some of the archaeology is now showing um not dna evidence but they're showing uh isotope evidence that people are moving about a lot um you know people from one area are settling in other areas so people are moving people are moving absolutely i mean there's the isotope evidence from um cattle bones at durrington walls isn't there that shows that some of the cattle were driven from cornwall some from wales and some from scotland um to durrington walls for the winter feast and probably going to stonehenge to bury some dead or something like that or possibly not by that point but that's absolutely fascinating because mm. you know without um, modern trackways or roadways or infrastructure, yeah. you know, how on earth, how on earth did they, they drove cattle all that distance? All it's, that distance, it's, that, yeah. That's an adventure story waiting to be told. I think that is that would be a good story. That's your next one, John. I, th- I think the interest, yeah. Well, uh, this obviously relates to my Scotland's rural past things in the 18th century mm. when I was studying that. Of course, don't forget cattle from. Sutherland was being drove down to London. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 It's always happened. It's always happened. If you have time, you Mm. can go anywhere. And Mm. I think nowadays we tend to be time poor. Yes. Which means that we think everywhere is a long way away because Mm. it takes, if it takes time to get there. But as long as you don't mind how long it takes you to get to places, you can go anywhere. Mm. Uh, I think the more interesting thought is how a prehistoric person would negotiate his way through other people's territories to go mm-hmm. from north to south or even yeah. indeed just to, uh, to another parish so to speak yeah. you this was a theme that i developed in the salt trader where they go on a journey and there's this constant negotiation and constant tension as they meet other other yeah. settlers, as they go through other settlements and cross their land and have to give them gifts and um and this is how culture transmits of course yeah yeah, indeed. And almost in a way, the Wessex culture is kind of, it draws on that Atlantic coast, um, that uh, contact that had already, in, uh, and culture that had already been created to to create a new culture in south, in southern central England that had never, you know, been very important before. So, indeed. yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's how it works. So it's obviously, it's not, it's it's not where I thought it was. Um, obviously, I'd, I'd um, worked this out before today, but um, uh, that it, I did feel that it has that kind of almost pan UK feel about it because it could. Although, well, let's get into the book itself because 
that you i mean really because you're going from the mesolithic through to the end of the bronze age um you're you do kind of um address quite a lot of the interesting ideas about um how of change and how this might have happened and how people reacted to it um and i particularly love if we um it skipped chapter three i think um so this is the people of the cliff foot in chapter three which is kindness and strangers um yes yes kindness and and strangers yes um that kind of addresses the the big archaeological question of whether people people move or ideas move yeah Um, (laughs) so (laughs) this is this is deep and murky waters indeed (laughs) it is and it's not just um uh people move and ideas move but it's also about uh how did people get um a foothold in the country um and how did the people who were there react to it so you do you do um Uh, plump down on the side of people brought the neolithic with them (laughs) so um there are it does work out like that doesn't it in the story i think that's easier to tell in a story though than uh, you know (laughs) oh i've come back from abroad and i've brought all these ideas with me kind of you know well the thing is that not only do ideas travel but you have to bring the neolithic into the country because you the neolithic to. involves things like sheep yes they um, have... sheep don't yeah. swim across someone <laughs> has to bring a sheep across with the knowledge of how to how to how to how to handle it yeah uh, people have to bring and cattle cattle seem to have been introduced yeah small, small uh, tractable cattle yeah. and grain the grain crops have to be brought yeah. in um, because they don't grow naturally in Britain. There's so, so many people, so many children particularly, who I say there were no sheep in Britain before the Neolithic. They think they can't get that in, you know, they just cannot handle that fact because sheep are British, aren't they? They are, they're so quintessentially part of our landscape. Of course they are. Sheep and cows is what you have on farms. Isn't it? Sheep, cows, wheat and barley. Yeah. yeah well, every school... None of them were here. <laughs> yeah, every school nursery book about the farm. Yeah. You know, all, all these creatures are, you know, um, part and parcel of farming for thousands and thousands of years. But there has to be an origin for it. Exactly. And, and as you say, I think you have to plump down. And besides, hasn't there been DNA evidence that 20% of our uh, of British DNA comes from those early farmers? Although, you know, this it's always back and forth a bit with, with genetic evidence, I feel. The DNA is a problem mm. um, because there's been so much mixing mm. subsequently. I mean, it would be nice to think that when you find DNA from Spain or DNA from... Uh, the Caucasus, these are first farmers coming in, but it could just as easily be a, a, a tourist with a bicycle, couldn't it? <laughs> it could be, but it could. I suppose you, what you've got to do is try and get some nice DNA from some um, early, from from some some bones, basically. Yeah. yeah. But DNA is always a problem in British archaeology mm. because, um, well, certainly in Scotland, the bone doesn't survive. We well, don't I- have... Yeah, we, we don't get bones up here. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I didn't know that. Done... What happens to the bones? Well, certainly in the soils in the east of Scotland yeah. are so acid right. that a, a bone just disappears entirely. Um, you can, you know, you you may get some isotope evidence from teeth and things, but yeah. bone is really really quite quite a problem in in many areas of Scotland. Um, it just doesn't survive. Wow. Well, when uh, we're going to take a break now, and um, when we come back, um, I'm going to start reading a couple of extracts from your book, if that's okay, John, because um, it's always nice to actually hear the words, and then we can discuss some of these issues in more more depth. All right, so um, just listen to these messages, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? 
Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny bitty blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Hi, and welcome back to the Prehistories podcast. Um, I'm here with Bride Wilkinson and John Barrett, um, talking about John Barrett's book, The Whitestone Stories. So um, I wanted to actually read a little um, extract from the Whitestone stories now. And before the break, we were talking about um, the third chapter, which is about the coming of the Neolithic <laughs> um, and coming of Neolithic people. Um, do you think they call themselves that? Who, who knows? Who, where did they come from? This is um, something that we can't really say. Um, so if I read an extract, then um, the... Uh, protagonist in the chapter is girl Lightfoot who's a young girl who had got lost at sea and thought she was going to die um, and then she's picked up by these strangers who bring her back to her land but the strangers are um, uh, in a face-off with her father and her father's friends who are aiming their arrows at them. The shriek of an arrow sliced through the breathless hush that had fallen over the strangers. A warning arrow thudded into a tuffock of thrift. A group of cliff-foot men was running towards the strangers. Each man carried a bow with an arrow knocked to the string. The running men halted. They took aim with their bows. No! The girl Lightfoot rushed forward. She spread her arms wide as if to protect the strangers with her little body. The cliff-foot men hesitated. They lowered their bows. A man stepped forward. He cast away his bow and ran towards the strangers. And a moment later, the girl Lightfoot was swept from her feet and whirled in the strong arms of her joyful father. So at this point, um, the girl Lightfoot's actions stop the um, inhabitants of Britain at that point um, from attacking the, the newcomers. But then... The end of the chapter is um, is slightly different. On the fifth day, the smell of smoke grew stronger. The girl and her family broke from the trees into a large clearing. Tall wooden houses stood where the forest trees should have grown. In the centre of the clearing, a round and mothering white stone boulder swelled from the earth, and all around the soil where the wildwood rooted was ripped open. At the margins, men were at work. They chopped at the great trees with shiny black stone axes. They piled up heaps of stones. Women scattered seeds into the wounded earth, and all the air was filled with the swirl of smoke from brushwood fires. The girl Lightfoot recoiled in horror. Her father stared aghast. Her mother turned away, unable to bear the sight. "'The poor trees!' cried the girl Lightfoot. "'The strangers are burning the forest!' So I, I quite like that section because the girl Lightfoot is obviously uh, regretting her decision somewhat. <laughs> yeah, you do someone a favour and what do they do in return? I know. <laughs> they come and destroy your world. Because that's... that's right. <laughs> the, and then, of course, the symbol of the Neolithic is that black stone axe. Yeah. It's the polished stone axe that is yeah. used as a plowshare to rip open the ground. It's used as an axe for... Um, chopping down the trees, it's used as a weapon. Mm. And what happens where, uh, on first contact between new people, more advanced people, and native inhabitants? Uh, and this is the theme of the story, of course. Uh, the girl is saved by the people, but what is she saved for? She's saved for imminent extinction, in fact. Um, unless, of course, the hunter-gatherers may have acculturated um, with the Neolithic people, though I think it's unlikely myself. It's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting idea. I mean, would you? Uh, I've always felt that the Mesolithic people had known about this this farming culture for many years because, of course, it was on the continent for, uh, for the very you know the very close continent for a thousand years before it came here, and eventually decided that they would 
you know, they, I suppose this is here to stay. We'll we'll kind of join them eventually, but that doesn't really work well when you think about writing it in a story. What do you think, Bri? What do you what's your what's your personal theory about the start of the Neolithic? Oh, <laughs> lordy. Um, well, I, I was reading a fantastic book by um, Caroline Wickham Jones mm. um, all about this quite recently. The Fear of Fire. And that's the one. Yeah, yep, yep. And, and and she was saying that once, you know, once you take that step um, to, to go from a subsistence hunter-gatherer, fisher lifestyle into into farming, it, it's really difficult to turn back yeah. because you've, you've, you've committed... Um, you know, to, to being in one place, to caring for crops, for, um, you know, looking after your livestock. And there just isn't, doesn't seem to be the time available to, you know, to go out and, 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 and to gather the resources from, 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 the, from the landscape and indeed to um, uh, migrate from place to place following, um, following game. Mm. Um, so... Goodness me! Did they come in from from elsewhere? Were the ideas brought here? I have absolutely no idea. Um, it's been a while since uh, since I've had to look at that in any in any depth. Um, <laughs> when I was at university in Sheffield, um, one of our one of our professors was um, was Marek Zvelabil, oh, um, yes. and I've got a vague memory of of some of the lectures and some of the discussions that we had there, but. Um, you know, I've, I've absolutely no idea. I wonder. It does. It, it does strike me when you you made that comparison to you know um, Im, uh, immigrant populations coming to already established um, populations, and I just wonder whether um, if you look at um, sort of the Americas mm. when Europeans mm. first came there, when, you know, there, there was um, masses, masses of of, of um, death and genocide and, and destruction. Yeah. Um, some caused by violence, but also some caused by 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 germs and, and different diseases. So I just wonder whether that might be an aspect um, which which has been underplayed somewhat. Yeah, I think uh, uh, on that disease aspect, it's quite interesting because a lot of the diseases were transmitted from animals to people. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Living in close proximity with animals would have been. A poor thing for the native hunter-gatherers mm. if they did try to adopt Neolithic ways with the sheep, which we, which we spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, they will be then susceptible to the diseases of domesticating animals, yeah. which yeah. the Neolithic yeah. incomers probably were immune to because they've gone through yeah. that process already. Uh, yeah. it, and in in the story, we talk about the, the magic sickness that... Um, the hunter-gatherers start to sort of um, shrivel up and die because the strangers, the Neolithic folk, bring in this magic sickness. Which, uh, yes. Um, uh, when the when the men try and go get wives from the Neolithic folk, they just wither and die. Mm. Uh, it's uh, a story way of saying yes. Illness comes with incomers very often. So, but whether whether there was acculturation, we just don't know. Mm. Yeah. We just don't know. Um, uh, in the previous book, I did actually on this, and I had people joining people from the Neolithic who are the bully in the in this society of the Neolithic people. He actually goes over to the hunter gatherers and marries a hunter gatherer woman because he he likes hunting. Um, and conversely, there is a crossover in the other book. Mm -hmm. But um, in the story, I wanted to think about what it's like on first contact. Yes. And I think the key to it is the strangers are burning the trees. It's never yeah. going to be the same again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it was such a massive impact. But although it's very difficult to know how quickly it went, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of work on um, the more recent radiocarbon dates and uh, with Bayesian modelling and so on to try and get a much more... Um, fine-grained kind of chronology um about the the start of the neolithic but it's just even um if you get it over a series of decades then that's that's actually to a to a sing a person with a single lifetime would still have seemed um a lot slower than you could imagine i suppose um anyway what i'm trying to say is <laughs> we see it as a revolution but uh, it could have been it was, much it was a slow it was a slow revolution <laughs> yes. it was a slow burn revolution yeah. um but as we know it was a revolution because it did happen it ushered in this um 
this age of stuff, in fact, age of with stuff. settled I like that. people in settled houses um, with stuff in them. Which we are uh, still, together. we're still part of the age of stuff. Indeed, indeed. If you could see the room I'm sitting in, you would <laughs> you would know what we're speaking of. It's just a room full of piles of books and um, stuff. <laughs> yes, I'm glad I'm, I'm in exactly the same place, <laughs> several hundred miles away. Oh, it's probably a good job we haven't got the the the, the, the photographic video Skype. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what what I think is to move this move on a little bit into the into the rest of your book, what I think is really clever is the way that you deal with how the incoming farmers felt by talking about you go the next um, chapter is um, set. Um, probably a few hundred years into the Neolithic and I, is, I read it as that anyway um, you correct me if I'm wrong John and um, you, you talk about how the ancestors um, are, and the stories about how they first came to this land and domesticated it um, so I, th I think that's quite it's really interesting the way that you have the first stories about how the hunter-gatherers see it and then in the next story you, you get the other the other point of view as well yeah, the, the next story is, if you like, the High Neolithic. Mm. Um, they've settled the land, they've cut down the trees, they've um, built their chambered tombs and filled them up with bones, which they believe to be their ancestors' bones. And it addresses a particular problem of British prehistory is we do not have any representational art mm. and therefore we have no writing. Yes, I love this story, actually. I think this is my favourite one because um, this is one of the things that you've, you find is that in the Neolithic, you do have abstract um, kind of shapes mm. and you get the spirals and so on um, carved on the inside of tombs um, and elsewhere. But yeah, there's no, there's no pictures of people or animals, really. Uh, you can see kind of the tr maybe faces on things like the Folkton drums, but they're very few and far between and, and a little bit of a stretch. Um, so there does seem to be a taboo on creating um, these, uh, represent as you say, representational art. And yet in your story, you have the little girl, five summers, nearly six, in the Neolithic story, in um, The Girl Who Made a Friend, um, creating a picture of a little girl who we, she wished would be her friend, and it has great power. Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, th this is the point about the chambered tomb. The chambered tomb is not a tomb for dead people. It is a house for living ancestors. Yeah. It's a house where your ancestors are alive. And in, in that sort of environment, if you believe in the magic, then you are going to be rather cagey about inviting them to give life to, to anything else which will be a representational picture you draw a bumblebee you draw a flower it is going to have this powerful ancestor life to it mm. which can be a dangerous thing when it comes into the world as we learn with the little girl she draws a picture of a friend she wants to have and suddenly the friend is there and the friend is not of this world mm. and it's, it's a kind of spooky story but um it is a spooky it's to story the power of magic in people's lives at that time. They're, we don't know what the beliefs were. Yeah. I'm trying to fill in some gaps in what the belief might have been mm -hmm. uh, and attaching it to this idea of taboo on representational art. Yeah, I love it. And uh, there was, um, I'd like to just read a short extract, uh, which is when, so because this, this child has come into um, five summer nearly six's world because she drew a picture of it she made a promise to the sun and the moon um, or, made, or made a request saying that she would give the thing that she most loved and sadly her grandmother is dying whilst this spirit girl is in the world um, but the grandmother is a very powerful woman um, and lures the girl back into the house of the ancestors so this is the grandmother speaking to this girl Ah, at last we meet properly. I can see you clearly here in your own house. You were always hiding when I glimpsed you in my own small house. But I saw you when you ate young five summers food. I saw you break the dish. I saw you nestle against her in her bed at night. I was watching when you spilled the milk and slit the grain sack. I saw you quench the fire and crack the roof beam. 
I watched while you took strength from the cattle and sheep. I saw you drink the blood of the small house father. I really love that section because it really reminds me of um, witches. It is. It's like a fairy story, isn't mm. it? And, you know, much of what um, John has described there would have once been um, in, in sort of rural societies, would have been blamed on, on the elves or the fairies. Mm. And you certainly do have, you know, in, in British folklore, the, the um, you know, people thinking that... Um, there are prehistoric monuments yeah. were were yeah. actually homes for you know for for elven folk. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 really quite fascinating, I think. I, um, I also like how 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 he's touched on that we we know nothing, we know next to nothing about um, how people in the Neolithic um, thought about the world. You know what what, what was their um, what what were their thoughts on cosmology? Mm-hmm. Um, how did they perceive? Um, you know, the, the, the what what was their religion? We know nothing about their their mythology or their thoughts. It's all um, speculation. There was a fantastic book that I picked up when I was there up in Orkney um, called Inside the Neolithic Mind by by David Lewis Williams, mm. um, South African professor um, expert on San Rock art. Oh, right. And he he um, you know he he makes all these um, ethnographic parallels with with different tribal societies to, to, to think about ways that we might um, picture people living in the Neolithic yeah. and, and what their monuments yeah. may have represented and may have may have met you know half of it could be could, could be just just total speculation but but I think it's a it, it provides a, a fascinating um, lens through which to maybe maybe relook at some of these things yeah I think Brian's Brian's hit upon the way you have to approach prehistoric societies you do it through ethnography Mm. not because what people in other societies do today is anything like what happened in Mm. the neolithic but because it gives you an insight into what you can only call the weirdness of other people's beliefs yeah Yeah. Um, but it's they are very very strange uh, to us that's uh, it in many ways we're very close-minded and it's about opening our minds to those other ideas and other ways of seeing the world indeed i mean we are we've we've been hidebound since uh, christianity uh became a force yeah. because we we tend to think about god mm. in the singular for, for one thing um certainly nobody in prehistory if they had gods would have thought in a, of a singular god uh and Arguably, the Neolithic weren't that concerned with deities who lived somewhere else. This seems to be something that maybe comes in in the Bronze Age. The the Neolithic people seem to have been concerned with a spiritual force that existed in their own world, Mm -hmm. that inhabited the bones of their chambered tombs Mm -hmm. and possibly the personalities of the standing stones that they put Mm. up. Uh, it's very hard to do, very hard to do it, but prehistory is very, very weird. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just just to digress, I've been digging. I was digging last year and the year before in a cave environment uh, near in, uh, in the northeast of Scotland, mm. where late Bronze Age heads were displayed. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. The sculptor's yeah. cave in Murray. It's very famous, uh, and it was used in the late. Bronze Age, Bronze Age for the display of human heads, which were displayed for many years, complete with golden hair ornaments, wow. which were not stolen or taken. Uh-huh. And then later in the uh, Pictish period, a new tranche of people brought living people in, killed them there, <laughs> exposed the bodies, took away all of the bones except the hands, feet, and heads. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the heads were then pulled apart at the sutures and seemed to have been scattered about in the cave, small fragments of skull. Wow. Yeah. And you think to yeah. yourself, this why? What's it all for? Yeah. You think, yeah. why? And this yeah. is so beyond anything we can understand. Sure. Well, I think Neolithic is the same. All we can do is make up a story and say, it was something like this, but probably a lot stranger. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, the past is a foreign country. Yeah. 
Right, we're just going to yeah. take a break now uh, on that note. Thanks, Bright. And um, it, whilst you listen to these messages, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, why um, most stories for children are set in the Mesolithic. So keep tuned in and we'll speak to you soon. The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech Podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. Hi, welcome back. Right then, so... I'm still talking to John Barrett and uh, Brian Wilkinson about the Whitestone stories. Um, and we are, uh, what's lovely about your book, John, is that um, it goes through a very long period of time um, with different stories that are loosely connected, um, seven stories. And what, where is the Whitestone, by the way? What is, was that from your imagination or is there a Whitestone somewhere? Um, well, the white stone is sort of characteristic of uh, prehistoric standing stones right. in this part of the world, certainly. If there is, if they were putting up a standing stone, one with a stripe of white quartzite, or indeed a white quartzite boulder, mm. was always favourite. Uh, we see this in chamber tombs, we see it in stone circles, we see it in stone rows, we see it in individual standing stones. Pebbles of white quartzite. Yeah or stripe of white quartzite or indeed a quartz boulder is the favorite one because white is their color of uh, life and or death. Um, The the same happens in Wessex, of course, where everything is white because it's It's on the chalk. chalk, And and probably your prehistoric monuments in Wessex, say, are kept clean and tidy and would stand out as white walls and white monuments in the landscape in a quite striking way that we don't see now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that um, the Clava Cairns mm. in the north of Scotland, they were actually dressed up with scatters of white quartzite pebbles all over. Mm. So mm-hmm. it's this white white colour is very important, or and seems to be quite important in previous. Newgrange as well, Newgrange in Ireland. Yeah. Newgrange is another one. That's got a... Well, the reconstruction is kind of a bit um yeah a bit over over overdressed but, uh, yeah i've heard that it, it might it, be a quartzite pavement it's, it's, rather than a quartzite facade yeah, yeah. but it, the, it looks it's the great same though. thing it's it's this white quartzite mm-hmm. looks great yes it's and it gives you an idea of how stately these monuments were they weren't just a heap of stones they were they were yeah. built they were built exactly i know um so um yeah i said Mainly, I find that when I'm looking for books um, about prehistory, they whether they're for adults or for children, then the the Paleolithic and the Mesolithic tend to be the favourite periods to write about. Um, and I was overjoyed to find your book, John, when you go into the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. Um, so why do you think those earlier periods are, are just so um, fascinating and, and get written about so much more? I think it's a modern thing. I think it's a uh, it's an environmentalist thing. En- environment is very mm. important in schools and in in political culture nowadays. People want to think about environment. They want to think about climate change and so forth. And the Mesolithic offers the opportunity very often. Yes, it's very good for that to paint rather rosy rosy picture of people living at one with the landscape um, and not not interfering with the forest too much and living up yes living at one with nature at one it's, it's with a kind nature, of rosy yeah. it is we're, we're back to to russo aren't we with a normal yeah. savage indeed yeah. and that has has really infiltrated um the world as uh, and and our thinking about those those periods and i suppose it's not helped by the cave art and things like that which are just seem to be the product of a of a very um kind of peaceful and reflective society 
Yes, and the cave art, of course, is stylish and it has a slight modernity to yeah. it. Yeah, well, because, um, of course, it, it inspired a lot of modern art, didn't it? So. <laughs> it, 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 is it not Picasso saw that saw some and, and said, we've learned yeah. nothing, we've learned absolutely yeah. nothing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, cave art, the cave art, but there again, we don't see much of that in Britain, of course. <laughs> <laughs> There's very little of, of, of sculpture or... Yeah, there's just a couple okay, of art, okay, painting anywhere. Couple of so, couple of places. Rare, that's it. Yeah. Um, there again, Mesolithic finds are quite rare in Britain as well. Yeah, but and yet the you know you've got so many of these books set set there. I mean, it's a wonderful time. But um, I thought that it was really important um, to show the change actually, um, which your book does really well. The change between the hunting and gathering and farming, which I think is kind of the biggest change in prehistory, um, and the one that has had the la most lasting um, impact on world culture, <laughs> is is farming really. Um, and your book does that really well. I just wondered um, why you stopped in the Bronze Age. I mean, you you've dug a lot of Iron Age sites, so why why not write about the Iron Age too? Um, if I were honest, I might say uh, because the Iron Age, I felt it was getting too complicated and needed more than a single story to do. <laughs> Uh, the other thing was I, was I was interested in change. I was interested in these episodes of change when the Neolithic begins or when the Neolithic ends and, and the Bronze Age emerges yeah. or when the Bronze Age ends. Um, so it was, it was these periods of change. Uh, I do have something in mind for the Iron Age, but it's... It's, it's, it's going to be a novel on its own, yeah. I think. It's, it's, it's too complicated because as we come more up-to-date into the Iron Age, there is so much yeah. data, there is so much information, yeah. so much material culture that we can retrieve. Um, to put it into a story would be quite hard, I feel, uh, because it would not need the kind of uh, literary interpretation that, say, the Bronze Age or the Stone Age needs and lend that to be a story. I think in, once we get to the Iron Age, we have to think rather more clearly about what we actually know about yeah. prehistory. So you feel that the earlier periods allow a lot more imagination um, to, to come in. I, f I think that even, even in academic writing, a lot of what is written about the Neolithic and possibly early Bronze Age and maybe even later into the Bronze Age um, is based on fads of what people have been you know, whether they've been reading Foucault, sadly, or Heidegger or whatever, or if they've been, or the, you know, the, it's it's all, um, uh, it, it, your interpretation is very much based on um, what else you're interested in, rather than, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, kind of um, focusing on, okay, the, this is the evidence and what can we say with it? Um, am I being a bit harsh there or...? What do you think? No, you're being you're being yes harsh but fair. We might yeah. say um, certainly that debate about whether Mesolithic people were acculturated into farming or whether Neolithic people arrived and slaughtered the natives, so to speak, and established farming. That debate is certainly coloured by political nineteenth and twentieth yeah, century yeah. culture because uh, the nineteenth century. Prehistorians were perfectly happy with the idea of a superior culture going to a primitive land and slaughtering the natives and then civilizing them. Um, but this then became unfashionable, say, from the 60s onwards, when, of course, everybody was uh, living in a world of peace and love and uh, probably chemical substances. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> And, of course, um, because peace and love was the name of the game, then it must have just been a sort of a generous acculturation yes. of um, of people and everybody lived happily together ever after as, as yeah. farmers. So that's modern culture um, influencing your interpretation of 
exactly the same body of evidence. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a bit And this whole idea of the of invasion versus diffusion um, could also come down to the fact that we see the diffusion of, say, US culture into the UK so easily. But that's obviously with modern technology. Um, and that's been a, that kind of started that that theory of looking at the evidence kind of started in the 70s and 80s, didn't it? So uh, anyway, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, so I know we're, we're all drinking Coca-Cola as we speak, aren't we? And, uh, <laughs> Tea for me. Thoroughly acculturated. Yeah. Well, now I'll be having Prosecco later. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> um, I wondered, Brian, if you... Um, uh, are stories useful? Do you use stories when you deal with kids or even or um, just generally when um, when you're talking to the great public, uh, in inverted commas? Yeah. Um, how how story-like do you get? How much narrative can you put in there before you have to stop yourself and say, but of course we don't know that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I do like to try a an informed, to use an informed fiction, mm. I suppose. Um, uh, looking at uh, more recent times, I suppose, looking back to my work with Scotland's rural past, um, so we're looking at the period from the from the you know the 1700s, maybe up into the 1850s or so, um, when there was a lot of change going on in rural Scotland from a a, a more um, cooperative farming society to more individualistic farming society due to the number of economic changes. It's really difficult to try and explain that to, to you know nine, ten year old, eleven year old yeah. kids. Um, in terms that they'll they'll grasp and that they'll understand, um, so you have to you know simplify, um, um, and and maybe not reduce things too much. Um, there's a great there's a great um, principle I think in, in interpretation where um, it says you can you can simplify things, but um, make sure you you it, it can't be um, falsifiable. You know, so so make sure you're still telling the truth, really, but in but in a, a, as, as simplistic a way as as, as possible um, for the audience mm. to understand it. So I, th mm. I think um, using a narrative is is a great way is a great way to do that. Um, do you think you would ever yeah, you would ever write fiction in the same way as John has? In the same way as John, if the opportunity arose, I, I'd love to. Um, you know, there, there there are so many there are so many tales tales to tell. Um, um, I'm next week. I'm off to Iceland um, just for a, for a week for yeah. a wee break, and it'd be great to try and tackle some of the sagas um, yeah. in, in, a, in a very simplistic kind <laughs> of way. Um, maybe tell some of the stories of, of you know Norse people over here in in that kind of in that kind of style um maybe not 500 pages long or so but um yeah i, I, I could see myself giving yeah. it a go i i always feel um that actually writing a good story is um the evidence has got to be there but if if I was to write that that is but i feel that you have to have a really good um plot and good characters and I th quite like John what you've done is that in your stories there's always something that I think kids could identify with so um, Five Summers Nearly Six is an only child and she desperately wants to have someone in her house to play with even though she goes and plays with all the other kids in the other houses she wants to have um, someone in her house that she can snuggle with at night and giggle together in bed um, the, and then you've got the boy with no name who who has to go and get a name, but he keeps on being bullied because everybody says he's too weak. Um, and these are things I think that that kids could identify with um, uh, to draw them into the story, which is then which then introduces these bigger themes. So I think that's a a really wonderful thing to 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 have in, and actually it's essential really. Well, I think these kind of interpersonal reactions are, are are fundamental to human society. If you're living in a family, then there are these family dynamics, the big brother who mm. bullies you but who loves you very much at the same time, the only child who, who, who needs a friend, who needs other siblings to bounce ideas off of and so forth. And But at the same time, in 
I imagine in the Neolithic, it was quite important to have a large family. Yeah. As it was straight all the way through to the 19th century, because your large family was your guarantee of, it was like your pension plan. <laughs> if yeah. you're going to live to a reasonable age, you need a lot of children to support you in that old age. Yeah. And you need lots of labour uh, as well in the here and now. Yeah. Indeed. So, so, so it, the the idea of the only child was also going more deeply into the society of the time. But yes, uh, it's got to be a story that the child, the children who are reading it now in school, at home, can engage with. And, and yeah, people, children have these things. They've got a big brother who's who's always on their case. They've got um. Uh, friends or they haven't got friends and i was hoping to address these sort of things as a way of drawing the children into a story which is going to then release them again into a different yeah. world it's almost like the people are the same as us but live but but very different too and uh, you have to kind of create that connection with the sameness before you can introduce the the weirdness of prehistory <laughs> Yes, yes, that that was the idea. That was the idea of the book. Uh, at the beginning of the book, I did give a little crib for the adults um, <laughs> in broad brush terms. This is when the Neolithic was. This is when the Bronze Age was. Because people just do yeah. not know this. But as Brian was saying, that it's difficult to steer that path between simplifying and dumbing yeah. down. I hope I haven't dumbed down that much but you've got to make the thing simpler than the archaeological data because there's nothing perhaps drier to read than an archaeologist report on the most interesting of sites they can they can take all the interest out of it they can yeah. suck it out <laughs> by writing and by report. writing it in academic so, language that you know just just a bit of plain english would be fine it would at least make it more interesting but <laughs> um yeah i've just been read doing some research and and that popular even popular books are written in in ways that you can't you can't speak and in ways that you can't share mm. with people um so when i'm working with school groups or i'm working with um uh, with uh, doing tours for for adults, um, it's a very different way of um, of discussing that period because you, as an archaeologist, you get kind of trained to speak in a particular way, and then you've got to untrain yourself if you want to actually talk to real people. <laughs> That's right. The archaeologist is very concerned, and I mean, I do this myself when I'm. Is very concerned with the exact uh -huh. description of what is in the hole he's digging. <laughs> or she. And he looks. Sorry, sorry. Well, actually, lady archaeologists are probably uh, better at explaining things in, in my mind. Uh, most of the women archaeologists I know are actually far more outgoing about explaining and looking at this wider world. I don't, and I don't know why this is. It's, it's just something I've come across. Certainly, Probably most of the male archaeologists I know are not elderly, but um, they've been taught by elderly people and they are very, very focused on mm. the technical, not mm. on the human. So they'll they'll describe a context, they'll describe a sort of soil <laughs> to the end. But then you think, yes, yeah, so what? Mm. Where are the people in this yeah. landscape? Uh, that's what I'm trying to do is put the people back into the holes. Oh, I love that. Put the people back into the holes. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I usually get most of my ideas on how to discuss things with people um, outside archaeology from fiction books like yours, John. So um, I thank, thank you very much for writing it. And I look forward to write, reading more of your books when I can get hold of them. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a thank pleasure. Thank you, and thank you very much, Bri, for joining us as well. Um, it's been great to have your thank perspective. You. Lovely. I've enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, now, how can we get, um, if our listeners can, if my listeners um, can get hold of you somehow, what's the best way to to actually contact you? Um, is it through me, for instance, John? Because I know that you don't have in the internet at your house. Uh, well, I'm I'm on email, so uh, yeah, so I'm on email. You might as well put the email 
uh, address on. That's as good Lovely. as anything, so isn't we it? Can have you, if that's all right with you, then we'll put your email address at the bottom. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brian, we can, can people con- is the best way through Twitter? Do you think to contact you? Twitter might, might be the best yeah. way for me. Um, I've seen you never off the thing. Yeah, I know. Um, and <laughs> my Twitter <laughs> handle is at Brian Treese, um at B R I A N. Um, thank you and i'll put that um link underneath the podcast as well so that everybody can um can see that um so thank you so much guys for uh being on the episode 11 uh, of um the prehistories podcast um i will be recording another podcast when i'm back from my holidays um in sometime in september and um i think i'm gonna do i'm gonna go a little bit out of my comfort well no it's not it's in my comfort comfort zone because um i've been reading these books um since uh, about 2004 um and other people seem to have just got on board in the last few years i'm not sure why uh, the first one was called the game of thrones um and although it's not got a lot of prehistory in there um it does have a ton of history and i'm gonna talk to a couple of my friends who are big Game of Thrones buffs too, um, to um, pull those stories apart and uh, identify some of those historical um, bits in the books um, and talk about how um, writers kind of bring all of this together, how much research needs to go into it. Um, So that's going to be a really good, a really fun one. And I hope to be able to speak to Jill Cook and Ghislaine Howard about Stone Age Boy and the first drawing um, in a future podcast at some point too. In the meantime, you can listen to the rest of my podcasts. Um, all I've got ten episodes there for you to uh, listen to, and there are a lot of uh, very interesting um, chat on the Archaeology Podcast Network. So, thank you very much for listening, and uh, tune in again soon. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.